Hello, fellow foodies. This week on the show, we're going to dive into some big questions about food. How do we know that food is food? Is Italian olive oil really olive oil or is it something else? And I have the perfect guest for this topic. We have Matt Siegel on the line. He has written about food and culture for publications including The Atlantic, um, the Fast Company and the Paris Review. He's a former English professor and lives in Richmond, Virginia with his dog who has the cutest name ever. His name is Waffles. We're going to talk about his new book, The History of Food, that will be coming out very soon on August 31st. So it's so great to have you here on the show, Matt. How are things going? Things are going great. Thank you so much for having me. It's great, great. to be here. Yeah. Well, let's start with just a simple question. What what kind of led you to write a book um, on this particular topic? Yeah, you know, I didn't set out to do that. So I was an English professor. Um, so I love irony and storytelling and symbolism and looking really, really obnoxiously close at things, uh, including text and research. Uh, but I'm equally obsessed with food, maybe more obsessed with food. Um, so I really didn't set out to write this book. Uh, my two hobbies just sort of collided, and I ended up just spending my weekends in library basements and archives and literally checking out books uh, by the duffel bag for my own interests. And what I really quickly realized was that the truth about food is consistently, consistently stranger than fiction. Uh, it just a lot of it really sounds made up. And, you know, despite all of these food shows and blogs and books, which I love, no one seemed to be talking about the things that I was found finding. Um, so really, I just started writing notes and uh, eventually it, it became a book. That's great. <laughs> well, speaking of weird ways that that um, food has been used. You touch on the topic of food as weapons. <laughs> Let's start there. Yeah. So sadly, I, I actually, I have a whole chapter dedicated to this, and then I, I touch on it on several chapters because it's so ubiquitous. Sadly, food has been weaponized a lot historically and a lot in the present day. Um, you know, going back in history, on probably the most basic level, foods were just used as projectiles. So uh, beehives, hot cooking oil, chili powder, these are all things you really don't want to get hit with, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, it's a step up uh, from sticks and stones. But then you've got more creative uses. So back to beehives and honey, Level one is just sort of throwing a beehive or catapulting it or dropping it off a castle wall if someone's trying to lay siege uh, or maybe rigging it with a firecracker so it explodes and releases swarms of angry bees if someone trips a wire. That was done in Vietnam. Uh, level two, uh, a little more sadistic, is capturing your enemy and smearing them in honey to attract stinging uh, and egg-laying insects. And level three, if you have the means and some more time on your hands, is to get a hold of some psychedelic honey and <laughs> gift it to your enemies and then wait until they hallucinate and attack them while they're hallucinating. That's sort of the Wile E. Coyote method. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you have all these crazy uses of food in war. Um, there are many, many more, but 
by far the most effective and, and probably widespread use is just to take it from your enemy, mm. uh, either by destroying their crops or poisoning their wells. The basic idea being that if your enemy can't eat, they can't march or they can't fight. And when you add modern technology to the picture, uh, you can get a lot more dangerous. So I don't wanna to talk too much about making bombs on the internet, but uh, during World War II, uh, the United States actually had what they called a fat salvage committee, which uh, is where they solicited salvaged uh, cooking fats from everyday American households to turn into bombs and munitions to be used overseas. So we were literally turning bacon and bacon grease into bombs. I had no idea that was even possible. Wow. <laughs> yeah, there's a, you know, there's some uh, sort of creepy uh, rhetoric or um, propaganda, but not just propaganda, instructional videos. So uh, if you do some searching, there's some Walt Disney cartoons floating around. Uh, Walt, the Walt Disney Company was hired by the Department of Defense to create a video soliciting these used fats and instructing um, American households how to collect them and, and screen them and why it's important to do it for the country. Um, those are sort of some eerie uh, videos to watch. Again, things that sound made up. Um, on the bright side, that's all some sort of dark things, obviously, with war. On the bright side, something I write about in the book is that food is also used for morale and to remind soldiers of home. So, mm -hmm. again, on the most basic level, food is calories. It's energy, right? During war, you always have rationing programs, so you can ensure that troops have literally the fuel to march. Um, but beyond that, uh, morale, what is, morale is super important. So uh, I write a lot specifically back to World War II about the United States use of ice cream during World War II to build morale and remind soldiers of their comforts uh, of home. And this, what's most remarkable is this was during a time when sugar and all of the supplies were in super short supply just about every other country in the world banned ice cream or, or, or rationed it as part of their rationing programs. But the United States doubled down, literally building uh, million dollar ice cream barges that trolled the Pacific delivering ice cream to uh, smaller <laughs> ships, yeah. building pop-up ice cream factories on the front lines, shipping hundreds of millions of pounds of ice cream mix during the war, it was really an, a very intentional effort to supply ice cream at a, at a crazy expense um, for the sole purpose of reminding our soldiers of home and what they were fighting for and providing uh, that ultimate comfort food. That's the same comfort food that people eat when they uh, have dental surgery or go through a bad breakup. Yeah. Well, and this, this topic of you are what you eat is another concept that you get into the book. What can you tell us about that and how, how like the psychology and social structure, how all that kind of comes together? Yeah. So, you know, this unfolds really throughout the book. I mean, my, my whole point is that food is 
is really not just a food, it's an invisible hand that, that really affects who we are socially, psychologically, economically. Um, but if you just look at you know the idea of you are what you eat, um, it, it's a belief you find of, across cultures that we are what we eat um, that goes back uh, to antiquity. So one of my favorite examples is uh, human breast milk. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of cultures used to believe that things like intelligence and personality traits were passed on through breast milk. So they actually used to screen wet nurses for things like uh, emotional stability, manners, and breast shape, uh, gambling addictions, laziness. Um, these were all their literal texts on, on, on this. And you definitely didn't want to drink animal milk uh, because that would have made you act like an animal. Now, Today, we know that's probably not true, but it's really not that far off. So in today's world, a lot of people define who they are by their food preferences, uh, particularly on Instagram, whether you drink pumpkin spice lattes or craft beer is for a lot of people, it's a social currency. It's a, a metric they use to define themselves as individuals mm -hmm. with good taste or worldly palate. But what we're finding out is that these individual food preferences actually have a lot to do with their foods our parents and our grandparents ate. So there's evidence, for example, that um, a lot of our adult food preferences go back to the foods our mothers ate during pregnancy, which back to breast milk, go on to flavor not only her breast mm -hmm. milk, but also her amniotic fluid. So there are studies that show that infants whose mothers consumed carrot milk, uh, carrot, <laughs> whose mothers consumed carrot juice during mm -hmm. pregnancy and lactation, uh, they showed a greater preference for carrot flavored cereal. Uh, another study showed that adults who earlier had been raised on vanilla flavored infant formula had a greater preference as adults for uh, vanilla, vanilla flavored ketchup. Um, you've probably also heard that children who are breastfed tend to be more adventurous eaters, and that's because they're exposed to these absorbed flavors early on. Yeah, the, the science of lactation is, is fascinating. It's such a, it's an interesting emerging area of science. Um, uh, earlier this year, we interviewed um, Dr. Bruce German, who works on kind of the gut microbiome and breast milk, and it was, he was it was his group that found um, that there are ingredients in breast milk that actually are specifically made to feed the microbiota, not necessarily absorbed by the baby itself, but feeding those gut microbes. It's, it's such an interesting, fascinating area of, of research. And it's surprising how little we still know about like the most fundamental source of human food from infancy. We are, uh, and again, it, you know, there, there's still debates going on, uh, you know, about breast milk versus infant formula and, and nutrients. And um, yeah, we're still learning all of these things. And, and really, that's just, you know, that's really the most recent, a, a recent example. But if we go way back in time, the, uh, the changes are more profound. So uh, particularly if we look at the advent of cooking, you know, our ancestors, they used to have these massive jaws and teeth and jaw muscles. Uh, they looked like nutcrackers. Mm -hmm. um, 
And this is because they really spent their days chewing raw tubers and raw raw potatoes and, and raw meat, hard things. Um, but then when we learned to cook our foods, we made them a lot softer. Think mm -hmm. about the difference between a raw potato and a cooked potato. Mm -hmm. So as a result, over the years as we evolved, our jaw muscles shrunk massively. And even though that happened a long time ago, uh, there's evidence that you can, you can see that our jaw muscles are still continuing to shrink even today as cultures uh, eat more and more processed foods, which are softer. And mm -hmm. even uh, not that long ago, the, the invention and widespread use of the fork and knife also changed the shape of our jaw and teeth uh, because we were able to cut our food into smaller pieces and all about putting less pressure on the jaw. We don't need these massive uh, muscles anymore. On, uh, on sort of the opposite size on the spectrum. So cooking shrunk our jaws, but it gave us much bigger brains. So by cooking our food, uh, we unlocked a, lo a lot of nutrients and made them more uh, easier to digest and utilize, which fueled the human brain, which is a really expensive body part. Um, so over time, our eating uh, cooked food is directly responsible for a lot of human intelligence and the size of the human brain. And, and what's a bigger game changer than that? Yeah, no, it, it's a huge game changer. Um, I, I teach a class called uh, Food Health and Society, and we get into what we call technological processing of foods. When you think about food technologies today, it's very different from like the basic technologies. We're talking about the use of heat, and how, you know, at first we could only roast foods, right? Because they didn't have containers to boil in. And really having a container that you could boil something in water also changed things. And yeah. then, yeah. And then all the fermentation technologies that came about, a lot of these foods, you know, can be stored longer term with fermentation. There's, there's just so many interesting moments in history that transform the way that our diets were formed. Yeah, just, I mean, agriculture... Mm -hmm. is another one i mean you know fruits and vegetables they're they're not the same they were uh, oh, a thousand years ago or ten thousand years ago or a hundred years ago and it's not just one change there are all sorts of changes um that on one side you know um a lot of fruits and vegetables used to be toxic or or just super bitter uh, so we wouldn't mm -hmm. eat them and through agriculture and selective breeding, we, uh, we bred them uh, so that they were more suitable for us to eat. Uh, and that's a happy story. On the other side, um, you know, we're, we can also make foods a lot less nutritious mm -hmm. uh, through agriculture. Yeah. I mean, the classic example is probably corn, right? Started off itty bitty little corn cob, tinier than your than your little pinky finger, and now um, large, full of sweet, you know, rich in sugars, um, but low in some of those defense compounds that can also have health benefits. Yeah, um, corn was a weed. I mean, it's mind blowing to try and wrap your head around who, it's always interesting to think, you know, who thought to eat those berries or who thought yeah. to eat those, those fruits, um, who thought to eat an oyster, right? I mean, that's not the most appetizing thing if you've never had one. Um, 
But corn is, is probably the most bizarre uh, because corn looked nothing like what it is today. It was a weed. It was a super, super small weed. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it had maybe six to eight kernels. If you can call them kernels, they were just they were more like pebbles. Mm -hmm. uh, it was it was very hard, not very nutritious, not easy at all to chew or eat. Um, we're really not sure what the first people who ate the, the ancient ancestors of corn did with it. Uh, there's not much you can do with it, but, you know, they had faith in it. Um, so they kept replanting it and, uh, you know, choosing only the seeds with the most attractive traits and tenderness and size. And, you know, ultimately we transformed a, a lowly weed from something uh, the size of a cigarette, maybe, that mm -hmm. had six six or eight kernels to today, you know, we all know uh, the ear of corn, I think the kernels are, you know, six to 800, maybe more. Yeah. I mean, as, as someone that's looked into the history of food, what do you think people in the future are going to look back, let's say 500 years from now, assuming we can make it past the climate crisis. <laughs> it's like, what do you think people will look back on, on this era and, and, and think about our, our current food systems? I mean, I think they're going to look back at us. You know, I, one thing I write about in the book, you know, there's, there's a lot of, of things that we can look back on as comical, right? So today, two of our uh, most popular vegetables are tomatoes and potatoes, not that long ago, people used to think that tomatoes were poisonous and that mm -hmm. potatoes caused uh, syphilis. So that's sort of comical to look at. We can scratch our heads and think, man, what, what were they thinking? They thought, to, you know, they thought tomatoes were poisonous. Uh, I think our ancestors are going to look back at us at the exact same way. Um, there's a lot of things we're doing that are pretty silly. Um, there's a lot, we have a lot, we're going to find out that there's a lot that's wrong. I mean, we're still trying to figure things out. You know, there, there are bright sides to what we do. Um, I think it's going to be interesting what our ancestors look like. I think if we go way into the future, you know, I, I think those jaws are going to continue to shrink. And I, I think it's kind of funny if you, you know, <laughs> if you look at all the sci-fi examples of aliens and these cultures <laughs> way in the future, they've got these tiny jaws and tiny, tiny mouths. And uh, yeah, they probably discovered cooking and probably are, uh, you know, are eating a lot less and, and not really gnawing on uh, animal bones. So, I, you know, I think uh, those changes are going to continue. That's great. Well, um, there was one plant in your book that I really enjoyed reading about, and it's something that has you know, started off in Mesoamerica, it's now cultivated in other places, but now we actually get this flavoring from things as banal as like basically, you know, wood scraps. And I'm talking about vanilla and how vanilla has also become this huge like social concept as well. What can you share with us about your research on vanilla? Yeah, you know, it's, it's so unfortunate and ironic that vanilla has become a synonym for plain or ordinary because it, mm -hmm. it's really anything but. Um, for starters, uh, vanilla is the world's second most expensive spice. Uh, 
and that's because it grows on orchids, which is interesting enough. That can take years to bloom. Uh, they only bloom for a few hours. The orchids only grow in select areas, 25-ish degrees north or south of the equator. Um, and they have to be pollinated by hand using a technique developed by a 12-year-old slave. And then they have to be hand massaged and cured and tucked into bed at night. Um, so it is one of the hardest plants to cultivate out there. It's uh, vanilla in nature has a very low chance of being pollinated. So even today, all of this has to uh, all of this has to take place by hand. It's very arduous. It takes a long time. Um, and it's it's very expensive. Um, you know, and another line here is vanilla uh, got its name from Spanish conquistadors who named it after a female sex part. You know, just something that, again, most other ice cream flavors uh, probably uh, don't can't claim that their interest. Their history is nowhere near as uh, interesting or exotic as vanilla. Mm -hmm. um, and what's really sad is that most of the people who call vanilla ordinary have probably never had it. As you mentioned, uh, because vanilla is so expensive and so hard to cultivate um, and results in, in so little extractable flavor, up to 99% of the vanilla flavoring in foods is artificial. And uh, it's extracted and derived from all sorts of things, wood pulp, um, so, uh, yeah, I think uh, vanilla, uh, its name has has been, unfortunately, uh, given a bad connotation. Even the flavor, um, you know, it'd be great if more people were able to taste real vanilla. Um, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I think it's, it's interesting because it is such a ubiquitous... Um, I guess, flavoring used in so many different products. You mentioned it's integration even into baby formula. It's in adult drinks as well and sodas. It's in lots of desserts. And um, it's interesting because it when we think of vanilla flavoring or vanilla scented candles, that's just due to one compound, as you said, that's, that's derived synthetically, vanillin. But what makes vanilla the complex, you know, it's, it's all that complex chemistry in the pod that you just don't find through these synthetic means. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, you know, your, your vanilla candle is, is not the same as a vanilla yeah. pod and, you know, even, you know, the vanilla flavoring you find in foods and yeah, you may, you make a great point there. Um, part of the reason vanilla was slandered as ordinary is because it is ubiquitous, but mm -hmm. That's sort of the point. Despite all of these things, vanilla is still usually, you know, everyone, these studies are all different, but most surveys say vanilla is still the most popular flavor of ice cream. Um, and if you can get your hands on some real vanilla ice cream, it's a game changer. It's, yeah. it's worth it. Great. Well, speaking of ice cream and vanilla and I mean, I love chocolate ice cream too. <laughs> it's like, um, you know, foods also have impacts on our emotions and the way that we feel. So in your book, you cover this topic too of, you know, are some of our modern food choices making us happier or more miserable? What can you share about that? Yeah, you know, 
we talk so much about how foods affect us physically. Um, I don't think we talk enough about the ways that they affect us emotionally. And you can go down, you know, a bunch of different routes here. Something that's concerning to me that I write about is that we've really created these impossible standards for foods um, within the last few decades. So we can buy fruits and vegetables out of season uh, and they always look perfect because the ugly ones are thrown away and um, things are applied to make the other ones look even more pretty. Mm -hmm. We can buy things like fat-free ice cream, zero calorie soda, pre-sliced apple wedges and plastic bags and uh, customize our coffee literally tens of thousands of different ways uh, at Starbucks and choose for more than 50 different types of Oreos. Mm. Now, at first, that sounds good. That sounds great. I mean, we love food. You mentioned you love chocolate. You know, so do I. That's great. Um, you know, I think at first glance, it sounds great that we have so much choice and, and so much convenience. But I think if you dig deeper, we've created uh, sort of a monster. So we've created a level of variety and perfection and convenience that we can't find anywhere else in life. So really we've taken the idea of having it our way, way too far. And there's actually research that suggests that having too many choices uh, actually makes us unhappy um, clinically. Mm. So the, the basic idea is that when we're faced with so many choices, we always imagine that there has to be a better choice out there. So we're never happy. We're, we're never happy with the present. Um, we sort of become paralyzed by our choices and, you know, always want uh, or expect that we might have made the wrong choice. And maybe there's something better out there that we have to keep searching for. And the same thing sort of goes with the ways that foods are depicted online and TV. Um, mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier seeing perfect vegetables in grocery stores. On TV and Instagram, it's even worse. We uh, were exposed to these perfect magical dishes and we often don't see the magic of TV behind them and the teams of people it makes for them to look like that. We just see this unattainable image that most of us are never going to be able to match ourselves. Yeah. It, it's sort of the same thing that happens with body image and photoshopping models. It's, it's happening with our food and, you know, that transfers elsewhere in life. If we have fat-free ice cream, I think suddenly we start to expect fat-free thighs and fat-free abdomen. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, you need sugar-free ice cream for that. <laughs> well, you know, this this whole this whole topic of images, you know, brings back some personal experiences. And I'm sure many in the audience have had this as well. If, you know, you see on the billboards, beautiful, juicy hamburger and fries from the drive-thru. And you go through and you're like expecting this gorgeous presentation of food. And you get it and it's kind of smushed in this wrapper and it's kind of lopsided and falling out and, and not at all delicious as you know as you had hoped it would be. Um, I think this happens a lot. Of yeah, it sets us up for disappointment. And it, it might seem comical, but really, I mean, <laughs> if you think about the dangers of social media, you know, it, it's the same thing is happening with our food and it's part of social media, um, but it's also part of 
of the grocery store. I think uh, to some degree, choices are great. We all we all love choices, but we all love convenience too. Um, but if if our breakfast is is consistently this perfect, super super perfect, super easy, super sweet, I think the problem is that the rest of our day is going to seem a lot more bitter in comparison. Not everything is that easy. Um, not everything is, is so homogenized. Yeah, and at the same time, there seems to be such a, a desire for that perfection in food. I'm thinking, just looking through Instagram at food pictures, there are hashtags like food porn, and it's just picture after picture of this beautiful you know, setup of foods that, again, are, are not realistic in, in real life. Um, for most of us that are trying to cook in the kitchen. Um, did you did you find anything else in your research around around this kind of phenomenon of of you know of sharing images of food and how that how that kind of impacts us or is it kind of along the same the same tract as, as what we see with commercial portrayals of food? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think your point about Instagram is right. You know, look, I love seeing dishes on Instagram. I'm, I save a lot. I'm inspired, mm -hmm. and you know, I say, hey, I'm, I'm gonna try and have something close to that tonight. Um, so yeah, that's great. But I think there is, you know, I, I think it just can be exhausting um, when you're constantly striving for something you think is real and looks mm -hmm. easy. Um, but in, in some cases it, it's not real and it's so far from easy. Um, and, uh, I don't, I don't think it's not, I think it, in some cases it hurts us to strive for those things. I mean, there's nothing wrong with making an ugly sandwich. I've had a lot of delicious, ugly sandwiches. Yeah. Um, and so I, I would love it. Um, I love I love, you know, going out to a fine dining restaurant that has, you know, where they prepare it with tweezers. That's great, but I don't want that in every meal. I, I think learning to be uh, learning to be happy with an ugly sandwich is sort of in the same sphere as learning to be happy with yourself and your life and in your house and and um, yeah, you know, it's that whole just keeping up with the Joneses thing. Yeah, and on another level, that you know. Uh, what's going on with throwing out all these ugly foods? You know, uh, that's yeah. a huge problem. It's getting better. There are some companies that are great companies that are, are selling these rejected uh, fruits and vegetables, and sometimes they're used in, in things like soups. But yeah, there's a, there are plenty of reports of farmers who work really hard to grow crops and they're rejected because they're not pretty enough and their curves aren't right or they have blemishes. And so there are really a lot of eerie, uh, you mentioned food porn, there are a lot of eerie similarities between uh, the way we treat food and the way we treat, you know, models and, and body image. Yeah, that's a great point. And your, your, your point you brought up earlier also about prepackaged sliced apples or I've even seen the store you know bananas wrapped in plastic wrap I'm like why why do we why do we you know or if you go you know right now it's watermelon season um if you go to the store you find your whole watermelon and then for probably triple the price you can get a little thing of of, of sliced up pre-sliced watermelon and I 
part of its presentation, part of it is this perception of convenience. Um, but it is a it's a strange it's a strange phenomenon in my mind when I see these things. I, I think it's hard to defend those. So you know, uh, with some other topics, it, it's it's a lot tougher. You know, there are food deserts in the mm -hmm. country where it, it's hard to get a hold of fresh foods and nutritious foods, and there's a cost barrier, right? Mm -hmm. Eating. Um, Eating the way you want to eat, whether it's ethically or organically or sustainably, can be expensive, and, and that's unfortunate. So, um, you know, some of those issues aren't so cut and dry. Uh, Pre-sliced apples in plastic bags, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to defend that. I think there's a lot of things wrong with that. Um, not only is it, is it wasteful, uh, but again, it's, you know, there's... Uh, you know, that there's just, you know, you think about the whole mindfulness movement and, you know, we are what we eat. I, I think we could all maybe slow down a little bit and, and biting into an apple is uh, is OK. Yeah, we can use less cool. We can use what jaw material we still have <laughs> to chew. To, to That's chew that yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I would hate to see a future where we all have uh, small jaws because we're eating everything out of plastic containers or drinking uh, some yeah. some juice that that is supposed to be a meal replacement. I think there's a sci-fi movie in the making right there. <laughs> um, well, let's talk a bit more about. Um, well, childhood nutrition is is a topic of interest to me, and I, I you know, the going thinking about apples sliced in plastic bags, and some of the the policies, the federal policies we have in the United States around how the USDA and the FDA determines or defines what is food and what categories of food it goes into. A couple of years ago, of course, there was that case where they were saying that. The, the the tomato sauce, which, by the way, is sweetened with corn syrup that goes onto the school pizza is considered a vegetable. Um, what can you share with us about about this general topic? I mean, it's the wild, wild west. Um, it, it, it's it's the wild, wild west. And, you know, it. The, you know, unfortunately, sugary foods and uh a lot of unhealthy choices are marketed uh, toward children specifically. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, it's sort of easy, right? Um, but it's not just children. I, th I think adults have the, have the same problem. And just because, you know, if you're an adult and you choose to eat, you know, a so-called adult cereal instead of one with marshmallows uh, and, you know, a, a cartoon character on the front, that doesn't mean it's necessarily any healthier. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the I talk in the book about how for I mentioned earlier how for hundreds of years people thought tomatoes were poisonous and potatoes caused syphilis, and the sad reality is not that much has changed. Um, the knowledge of nutrition um, is super super clouded and confusing and there are a lot of unknowns one thing i write about is that the top scientists in the world still can't agree on whether or not eggs are good for us and you know that 
that that's a problem. Eggs are either the best thing ever or the worst thing ever, or it doesn't matter. And I'm not referring here to old sources. I mean, present day studies, mm -hmm. um, you know, books by doctors they're putting out now, there's a lot of disagreement. And so as consumers, yeah, it makes it really hard for us to figure out what to feed our kids or what to feed ourselves. And, you know, if you look at the uh, USDA's dietary guidelines, Unfortunately, you really need decoder glasses mm -hmm. to try and figure out what's what's supposedly healthy. So, you know, they used to demonize cholesterol, for example, and then a few years ago, they dropped the upper limit for uh, dietary cholesterol, um, except they really didn't. So there's no longer, a, you know, a, a black and white dietary limit. Um, but if you really look at their long, long, confusing guidelines of, of what is healthy, and if you add everything up, actually nothing has changed. The, the, mm. If you do the math, the dietary limit for cholesterol put out by the USDA is the same as it was years ago uh, before they removed it. And, you know, not, not only do we, I don't want to blame them completely, not only do, is the science Science is very confusing. Not all foods are equal. Our bodies are different. Yeah. Um, eggs aren't the same probably for, for everyone, right? Um, diets work differently for different people. Um, so the science is contested, but the USDA is also sort of programmed to fail. So it's responsible both for the interests of American farmers and meat producers and food producers, mm -hmm but also the nutritional interests of Americans. So on one hand, they they have to tell us to buy more meat and dairy and other foods. And then on the other hand, to eat less of them. Uh, so it's very confusing. And even if you could make sense of their guidelines and figure out what, what's supposedly healthy, um, you know, labels are labels are not very transparent. They're not, they're they're very confusing. And, you know, a lot of the guidelines are very hard to enforce. You know, the the, uh, the FDA and USDA, they just do not have the, um, the bandwidth or the ability to do, I think, what they would like to. So unfortunately, yeah, it is still the wild, wild west out there. Um, and I think that's sort of the bright side uh, of reading this book. I get into a lot of... Uh, a lot of dark things in, in history. Um, and by the way, this is nothing new. All of these things yeah. used to go on, you know, back in the day um, with with nutrition and, and you know, uh, it certainly wasn't wasn't easier to figure out what was healthy back then. But I think if there is a silver lining, yeah, there are, there are ways you can educate ourselves now and, and it's not easy. Um, but I think just, just learning some of these concepts and looking at your labels and, and knowing what means what, mm -hmm. uh, what vanilla flavoring means, not that that's not a health issue, but it's very easy to see, you know, French vanilla ice cream and think it's made with real vanilla when it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a great point. Well, and it, it is it is a bit of the Wild West because there's so much control in the hands of, of industry and lobbyists that really drive a lot of policy um, today. But as you said, you know, I think 
there there are resources out there for those that want to learn more. And um, I think, you know, I'm a big believer in to better prepare ourselves for the future. We have to understand the past. And that's why I really enjoyed your book. And um, yeah, and I can't wait for others to read it as well. Thank you. Tell you. us, yeah, tell us where where can folks go to um, get the book? Again, it'll be out on August thirty first. It'll be out everywhere August thirty first, and it's available to pre order now from mm -hmm. all of your uh, all of your bookstores online or in person. Great, great. And um, where else can they find information um, on you? Do you have a website for the book? Uh, I have a website. It's matt-siegel.com, M-A-T-T-S-I-E-G-E-L. Mm -hmm. -E -E and yeah, you can find some information there or just Google. It's on Echo's Great. website and all the bookstores. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Matt. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. This was great. Yeah. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast, The Food Curious, recorded on Skype. You can find this episode and all of our others at foodiepharmacology.com. You can also check out the video for this episode at the Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel under the Foodie Pharmacology playlist. Thanks so much to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth for their help with the show. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in every week. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time.